Sacred Pause with Jessica Winderl. Hey there, guys. Jessica here. And this week's episode is all about meditation practices of observing the mind, how we still the mind. Uh, it's a really good one. So I can't wait to get to it. But before I do, I thought this was the perfect episode to give a shout out for the Atman Yoga School and our upcoming 10-day immersion. This is a 100-hour teacher training. It's standalone or it's part of our 340-hour advanced vinyasa yoga teacher training. So the training is in November and it's all about meditation practices, learning how to practice them, learning how to teach them, experiencing them, and really giving ourselves space and time and community to dive into self-inquiry and practices of concentration. So if this is something you're interested in and you've already completed a 200-hour teacher training, send us an email at hello at atmanyogaschool.com. We do have limited registration available for this program. And so don't wait. Okay, time for the episode. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the One Sacred Pause podcast. I'm your host, Jessica, and I am so excited to talk to today's guest because he has a very interesting story. So we are going to get deep into meditation and talking about meditation and meditation lifestyle. So welcome, Vigo Johansson. Thank you very much. Yes, I'm so happy that you're able to join me, and I'm so curious to hear about your story and um, can't wait to dive in. So will you maybe just explain a little bit about um, what your life now looks like? You're a meditation teacher. Yes, I uh, started full-time about 15 years ago. And today, I just moved back to my hometown, Horten, with my wife, who is a yoga teacher. And I basically teach uh, yeah, meditation to uh, corporations. To I have my own groups in Norway. I have retreats in Italy. And uh, I also do one-on-one. So it's uh, many different settings. But the one element that is always there is meditation. Mm. And have you found, I'm curious, just in general, I've been in Norway for three years and um, I teach meditation, but my main thing I teach is yoga. Mm. Have you found that people have been resistant to learning meditation? And and what I mean by that is if, if your full-time job is teaching meditation, I imagine that that might be a little tricky sometimes to... Uh, do you, are you able to have enough clients who want to learn meditation? I guess is more a better question. Yeah, no, I, I mean, uh, I have to say that I have. Uh, if you want to live by it, you need to adapt, you know, to to people's needs. And uh, so my entry point uh, most of the times is uh, either stress management or self management. You know, definitely in the corporate section. And uh, I also I've studied uh, the brain quite extensively the last uh, five years. So through brain science and uh, research on meditation and their own experience of stress, 
then usually you after that you can start to sell in meditation as uh, as a way actually to still the mind mm. and then uh, so there, then there is no resistance in my experience uh, anywhere actually even people that have never heard about meditation before or, or even come come to the class with some uh, quite deep skepticism mm. with that kind of entry it's uh, in my experience it always fades away yeah, and then some people keep it just as a stress management technique. But my experience also is that most people that keep going, they go into the deeper topics of meditation, you know, and uh, that usually it doesn't even take such a long time, you know, because when the mind starts to to still, you are drawn in, you know, and hmm. that is it, you can't resist it, you know, it's your it's yourself. Oh, that's amazing. So then have you had a lot of clients that you've worked with for a long time? Like once they kind of get that, get past that barrier to entry and they're like, wow, this meditation really works and it changes my life. Do they tend to work with you for a long period of time or do they like come and go or what have you seen with your practice? Well, I mean, I, uh, I have adapted my, what I offer, you know, as according to what people want. So, uh, so these days I have like, you know, I, I have one day courses for people that just want to, to have a little peek. I have eight week courses. I have retreats in Italy. I have uh, also eight week courses like for non-beginners. And I have uh, like a one year course that is called uh, a deepening, you know, into meditation. And uh, and after that, I also some I'm asked, you know, can we have another one year course? So then I just I make these things as people go along. So yeah, there are quite a few people now that uh, I've been seeing for uh, you know up to five years. Uh, sometimes it's regularly, sometimes it's just you know we meet twice a year. But uh, yeah, it's quite open. But definitely a lot of people that just they need guidance, you know, and especially as they start to really taste it you know and, and that could very often it takes three years you know and then people say it's now it's now that it's beginning you know so so of course then it's uh you can't just drop people if they if they want to go further so uh yeah oh that's awesome what what type of meditation do you teach uh it's uh i mean my my background is in Buddhism and uh, and uh, also I mean I'm also trained as a yoga teacher and I have uh, so personally I, I have I use the breath and I use a mantra and I also do some meditations on the nature of mind so but usually when I, I start teaching people I always start with the breath yeah because that's, uh, you know, it's completely neutral and it doesn't belong to any culture. Yeah. It's absolutely stripped of beliefs. So I have found that to be the best entry point for, uh, for most Norwegians at least. Mm. And then as people proceed, you know, we can take the reflection, of course, deeper. But very often I just, you know, the, the, the meditation itself, I, I like to just keep it on the breath because it, it changes as you go along. So... Your perception of what the breath is will also change and become more and more subtle. So in a way, you, you could stay with the breath for your life, and that would be a perfect meditation object. 
That's awesome. Yeah, well, and your background is so unique because, because you actually lived as a monk for four years. Yeah. So we kind of talked a little bit about what you're doing now with your retreats and your trainings and corporate trainings, but will you kind of backtrack a little bit? And how did you start with meditation? Like what, what brought you to the practice? And then how did it develop in your life to the point where you're like, wow, you know what, I actually am really ready to be uh, completely immersed in this lifestyle and this practice. Yeah, I think if I should uh, you know, give uh, a bit extensive answer to that question, I think I would have to start with uh, you know my life as a as a young boy and a young man in Norway, you know, and uh, because in a way I had uh, because you know from our culture actually we all inherit a worldview and uh, what is a good life. Very few people reflect on that by themselves as really young people, you know. And uh, so I also inherited this worldview, and and in many ways I fulfilled it. You know, I had everything that was supposed to give you a good life, mm. everything. I had, uh, you know, I have a wonderful family, beautiful parents, great upbringing, a lot of friends. I did well in sports and at schools, you know. I had a very nice girlfriend, and I felt completely empty inside. So in one way, my, my life, and that was so strong, so my life in a way collapsed when I was around 18. And I had quite a bit of anxiety, you know, of the existential kind. So, uh, and that of course brought up all the existential questions. And I was afraid I was going crazy, you know, so I didn't share that with anyone. I just kept it inside. And I'd have to say today, fortunately, because uh, if I had gone to see someone, I would probably have been medicated, you know. Oh, which is so sad. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, so, so in a way that, that anxiety and all the questions, because I could also see them, that everything that, that held life together was so shallow, you know, it had no reality to it. It was just a story. And uh, and I knew I couldn't base my existence on that, and I didn't really have an alternative. So I was just searching, you know, in uh, in literature, basically, you know. So, uh, but I didn't really find so much good answers because all of the answers I got there was basically extremely cynical, you know. So, uh, but it uh, the anxiety gave me the courage, I think, to to just leave Norway. You know, I was you know, I was quite. Uh, Maybe like most people, you know, you, you you seek security. But my security was kind of smashed. So that led me to, you know, I just traveled to India with some friends. And I didn't go there to on a spiritual search. I was just traveling. And uh, halfway into that travel, we just, and this was by pure accident. We ended up in Dharamsala, you know, which mm-hmm. is the place Dalai Lama lives with the exiled Tibetan community and we happened to come there uh, when it was Tibetan New Year this was in February and uh, there is an old tradition that the Dalai Lama gives uh, you know like a one week lecture he gives lectures every day to the Tibetan people so we ended up there you know listening to his uh, to his lectures he talked Tibetan there was a monk sitting there and translating into English you know simultaneously and I sat with an old Walkman and listened to this on radio, you know. 
And uh, that was my first exposure to, you could say, Buddhist philosophy and psychology. And it hit, it hit me so hard. It, it was almost instantaneous. You know, I knew I had found my home. Hmm. Uh, and I hadn't felt that kind of, you know, I would say passion for anything since I was a small kid. So uh, it was so strong, it was almost frightening, you know. So uh, so after that, I went uh, to Kathmandu and I did my first 10-day silent retreat. It was a Vipassana retreat. Hmm. And I had no idea about meditation until that point. So that was my, uh, yeah, my first experience. That is quite quite violent, you know, the 10 days in silence. And my mind was all over the place. So after six days, I, I actually thought I was going crazy. I just looked into the wall and thought, now I'm going to snap, you know. <laughs> and I was really considering to just escape back to Kathmandu and just, you know, I had three things on my mind. I was basically uh, a pizza <laughs> and a few beers and a film. So that was basically my strategy to relax. You know, I, didn't, I didn't see that at the time, but that was what I was longing for. You know? and, uh, but I also realized if I escape now, it will follow me. This, what I see now, I, I can't really escape from it because this is, you know, this is the state of my mind. Yeah. Well, and I was seriously afraid I would snap. So I was in a huge dilemma. I was really, I was really at the, I was in a really dark place. And in the middle of this uh, little reflection, you know, the meditation gong rang, and uh, somehow I just ended up into the into the meditation hall, and I sat down. And uh, it was one of those sessions that is called one hour of uh, strong determination. You know, we're supposed to sit down and just not move for one hour. You know, even if you almost die of pain, just don't move. And uh, and I decided now I'm going to do it. You know, because Everything is so painful anyway. So I just sat down, found my breath, and it was so painful. I was just trying to find the breath, relax, back to the breath. And I think after about 50 minutes or something, you know, I, I was uh, suddenly I had these new sensations, and it started in my toes. And then suddenly it was like uh, like a fire, like a wildfire. Just suddenly it just spread to my whole body in uh, less than a second, and. And from absolute pain, I sat in pure ecstasy, you know, within one second. And that was so surprising to me, you know, how could that happen? You know, nothing changed in my outer circumstance. I was just sitting there struggling basically with pain and trying to stay with the breath. And suddenly I had this feeling of freedom. It was like my whole body had an orgasm. Hmm. And uh, of course, then I was really interested uh, you know since then basically you know what is the mind what is meditation you know how is that possible so uh, and since, uh, after that of course i went uh, back up and down you know in uh, my emotional life but something had shifted because i didn't take it so seriously anymore you know I, it was a really important lesson the ecstasy in itself of course was a great experience but that was not the most important it was the shift how that sudden shift was possible Mm-hmm. That really, that really made me reflect, you know. And I can, of course, I could also see that this tradition, because the program, you know, it it looked like it was designed for torture, you know, getting up at four, meditating twelve hours a day, 
not speaking to anyone, not reading, not writing, just staying with yourself. I barely had food, you know. And then I realized that actually this was designed for me to to find something else, you know. And I can see it was so the people that designed this, they really knows what a human being is. And then six months later, I I, uh, I became a monk, basically. You know, I, I, I came back to Norway, tried to start at the university, studied comparative religion, but my whole being was just longing for something else, you know. So I went back to India, and I became a monk, you know, just uh, straight after that. Hmm. It was a very abrupt decision, you know. Because I didn't have a visa, I didn't have money, I didn't have anything. I just said, I need to stay here. You know? So I just stayed on. When you went and did the Vipassana meditation, did your friends go with you or did they, did you part ways or what did they think about it? Yeah, no, I had one of my, one of my friends, we had parts of one of my friends was in India and my other friends came along with me, but his experience was quite different from mine and not so dramatic. So he really enjoyed it, but it didn't give him that. And for me after that, it was when I look back, it was no way back, you know. I uh, I just had to pursue it. Mm. I think also because my life had collapsed, you know, in a different way than, than his had before, yeah. you know. So I, so I was in a very different situation. Mm. Well, and I think once you have an awakening like that or you have what you said, like a dramatic experience, it's almost, it's this this thirst and this hunger that's coming from inside and it can't be quenched or or uh, dispelled by anything external. No, it's, no, that's really true. I mean, that's my experience too. I mean, I, people, if people, I said, you can have the whole world, you know, you can have all the money in the world, all the women in the world, you know, I would have been completely uninterested. Mm-hmm. And I think we see this more and more too, unfortunately. And um, I talk about this quite a bit in my teacher trainings as well, the the state of the general population, I think, in the Western world, where kind of like what you were describing, we have everything we need, all of our basic needs are met, we have food, we have money, we have shelter, and then it's the, okay, then you go to university, and you get married, and you have kids, and you have a career. And yet, more and more people, especially in Norway, are hitting the wall, or going on sick leave, or are depressed, or struggling with anxiety. And it's like, why is that? Well, I think, and I imagine you probably believe this also, it has to do with um, a disconnection to spirit. Yeah, absolutely. And at, uh, at the deepest level, definitely. Yeah, and people don't know, and they constantly are looking for external distraction or external validation to kind of give them that deep, deep sense of contentment from within that they're missing. And yet I think a lot of people too are missing the vocabulary (laughs) to be able to talk about these things and even identify what it is that they're missing in their life. Because in the Western world, we're not taught how to talk about our emotions, how to talk about our connection to spirituality or um, to, to become even the littlest bit comfortable with our own company. You know, we're, we're always, I, it always makes me so sad when I hear people say, I don't like to be alone. And this idea that just even being, spending time by themselves is painful. It's like, oh my gosh. Okay. Wow. No wonder. Like there's such a disconnect between the mind and the heart and the spirit and the body. And, um, 
it's so I completely understand what you were saying about just like, it's like this very urgent wake up call, wake up, pay attention, life is now. And then it's like, okay, well, but what is life now? We have this very temporary uh, <laughs> experience of being in our, our meat suit. Um, so what's left? Well, what's left is that eternal part of ourselves that's, that's the deepest, stillest, most, most real part of our, our self and our being. But um, what I'm so curious, though, how your shift to becoming a monk from that first Vipassana retreat was very quick. What did your family think about that? I think they were in a state of shock, you know. Because, yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I actually, I went back, you know, after a few months back to, just to do a one-month meditation course, you know. And my original plan was to come back and continue my studies. But uh, a few days before, and this was just a few days before Christmas, you know. So they expected me back for Christmas. And uh, I realized just a few days before that, I can't do it, you know. So I went to the to the head lama, and I, together with a few other people, actually there were four people in that room, and we all came with the same question, you know, that uh, I'm thinking about becoming a monk. And uh, I was the last one in line. So, and he told all the others, you know, that no, it's not time. I don't. That's not for you, you know. And then he came to me, and he said, as soon as possible. Mm. I, <clears throat> I was 21 years old. And, and I wasn't really prepared for that answer, you know. So I just, you know, I think I just tumbled out the door and I just sat down totally confused. And then his uh, attendant came, you know, he was very skillful. And he said, you have to make a decision within five minutes. Hmm. And then I just heard myself saying, you know, I stay. I want to become a monk. And then I, uh, yeah, and then I just stayed on. You know, I called my, called my mom and... Uh, you know, I just cried a bucket, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, she, yeah, I can't imagine how it was for her, you know. But uh, it, it was horrible, of course. But uh, I I went back quite soon, you know. So in I think it was in February, you know, this was in December. So I went back in February and I stayed with them for, I think, two months, you know. And we had extremely good talks. You know, they started to meditate. They became vegetarians. So they, their whole life shifted, you know, because of my because of my choice. So I was really met, you know, with, uh, not only with understanding, but actually as uh, we became fellow practitioners, you know. Wow. That's... So that was amazing. So when I then went back to India, it was everything was really sorted, you know, back uh, back in Norway. Yeah. That's really unbelievable. Like in, in, a, in the best way possible, like um, to have that kind of support from your family and, I imagine that it really put your mind at ease too, like that you had that support to go back to India and really focus on the work that you needed to do there. Definitely. And because most of my uh, monk friends, you know, they, they, some of them actually, after they, they took that choice, you know, their parents abandoned them. I said, you know, that because they were in a Christian context, they couldn't, they couldn't take it, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it's really, I could say it was created a lot of pain for, uh, for many of my friends. Hmm. So even my grandma, you know, because I, uh, when I went back, I went into my first uh, solitary retreat and I was going up into the mountains for three months. And uh, my, my grandma, you know, she asked, how much do you need? You know, so she really wanted to pay for that. So that was also amazing, you know. Wow. So, <laughs> so I was really lucky with that one. 
And do your parents, do they still um, meditate or are they still vegetarians? Uh, no, yeah, none of us are vegetarian anymore, actually. But uh, they are right now. I'm in Italy. I'm doing a retreat and my parents are here, you know, as participants. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, it's wonderful. Oh, wow. I'm just, I, you can't see me right now. We're just on audio, but I'm like, my, I'm just like smiling so big because that is, that is my dream for the world. Yeah, yeah it's fantastic. To have yeah. families doing yoga and meditation together and sitting in community, having conversations about things that are beyond gossip or beyond, you know, the superficial, like, okay, who's got a new car? Who's moving into the neighborhood? <laughs> like, you know, those things that the, the very um, uh, mundane, very base things that a lot of people and myself included, like we're, we're still human. I'm a householder. You know, yeah. we get pulled into those things, of course, but, but the goal is to be moving towards more elevated conversations and more elevated life choices. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's so cool. Um, I practice yoga with my mom and it's, it's one of the greatest joys in my life. I love it yeah. so much. Shout out mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's uh, it is amazing. Mm. Yeah, it's like you say. I mean, I have no problem with uh, you know the material aspect of life. I think that's fantastic too. But it has it has to be based in spirit. Yeah. Otherwise, it becomes meaningless. And I think that is the problem, you know, in the Western world today, and also in the East. Actually, you know, it is that it's the absence of meaning. You know, you have everything, but you don't have meaning. And if you don't have meaning, you don't have anything. And, uh, and like you said also, you know, I think it's not only the book, of course, the vocabulary is not there, but, you know, we have removed spirit, you know, we, we, we actually, we, it doesn't exist anymore, you know, in the, the culture, in the whole culture is denying the existence of spirit. Yeah. So, you know, when, when you are educated as a human being, everything is about the body and mind. You know, and uh, and very little even for the mind, apart from knowledge. You know, but actually to to work on the mind itself. You know, it's it's starting to come in, to come in. Uh, spirit is still non-existent. Yeah. Oh. Which is nature, you know. So in a way, so so of course it has to be, and it should be problematic, you know, because if you deny your nature, you you're bound to suffer, and you should suffer because that is a signal system from your from your inside, I try to tell you that, hey, something is wrong here, you know? Yeah, so wake up. Be, yeah, it should be painful. You know, that pain is a blessing. Well, I think it, it can be a blessing if perhaps then too there is some sort of an outlet to funnel that into or it's the catalyst for that inquiry. Like, oh, wow, I'm in a lot of pain right now. Where Kind of like your experience. Where can I find relief from that pain and what's perhaps a method that could help me handle this or how do I reconnect back to spirit and exactly. you know I think that's that's the problem when so many people are experiencing that pain and yet they feel so lost so disconnected so isolated and have nowhere to turn to or have don't know where to look for a teacher or a, a school or lineage or a method 
to help them perhaps explore some of these things like meditation or yoga or whatever it is. I mean, there's so many different traditions, um, I think, within spiritual inquiry. But it's I'm just so grateful <laughs> to have this in my life and, and be able to be a teacher and perhaps kind of extend a hand to other people who maybe are, are looking for some help or some answers. And not that I have all the answers, but that perhaps I can support them in that journey. And you're a teacher, you do exactly the same thing. And it's, um, you know, I think it's the best job in the whole world. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. It's, no, it's extremely meaningful when you see people reconnect to themselves, you know, I mean, it's the best thing there is. Yeah, there's that spark in the eyes. Yeah, yeah, I know yeah. it's the deepest satisfaction there is actually to see that. So, yeah, it is my, you know, it is my job. I, it's, it's, I can't really call it my job because I, it gives me, it gives the wrong. But it is my job. But it's, it's my passion. You know, it yeah. just happened to be that my job is my passion. Hmm. So, uh, so what? Yeah, no, it's extremely meaningful. Yeah, it really. I mean, it changes. It changes you. Um, to be, of course, a student, and hopefully you were students first and foremost and always. But stepping into the role or the seat of the teacher um, is also a way of learning. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it just gets richer and deeper and more refined over time. Yeah. Which is the best part. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a huge responsibility to start to teach other people. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you have to. You have to walk talk, you know. Otherwise, it's uh, yeah. You that's a huge responsibility. You can't take that lightly. That, that that's a disaster. You know? Absolutely, and also if you're not grounded in the practice, then I think that's a real uh, danger for other people. If, yeah. if you're not able to be present and know what you're doing and how you're guiding people, then it can be, especially when you're talking about energy and um, a lot of people come to these practices because they are searching or, or looking for something. And I don't know, I guess I'm just thinking also, obviously I'm American and thinking about some of the things I've seen in America in terms of teachers who aren't rooted in the practice and who are um, stepping into some dangerous territory, possibly. Yeah, no, I mean, there are heaps of stories like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and even in the East, too. I mean, of course, now if we're talking more plenty ethical, yeah, yeah. That's, that's so... Yeah, definitely a lot of stuff there to, that we could talk about. But I think I would rather um, talk a little bit more about your experience as a monk because it's so fascinating. And um, what I'm just so curious. So once you came back to India and you or were, were you in India? Where did where were you? OK, you were in India. Um, I was in India and Nepal because, you know, the, the visa situation, you know, I had to go back into in between the borders because I had visa for about six months at a time. So, okay. yeah, so back and forth between uh, Nepal and India was basically my route. When you said yes to becoming a monk, 
Yeah. What, like, logistically, what happened? Like, where where were you living, and how how did everything get organized? Did you have to sign any papers? Like, what was was there initiation ceremony at the very beginning, or how was that process? Uh, after I, you know, after I spoke to the the head lama at uh, the meditation course, that was in Kathmandu, and this was in December. And then uh, I think that's an old tradition, you know. They so he was. I took him as my teacher, and when you're getting initiated as a monk, they always send you to their own teachers, you know. So he sent me to be to be initiated into monkhood in Budgaya, and this was in uh, February, you know, with one of his teachers. So that was just uh, was no signing of papers, but it was definitely a, a ceremony. And uh, you know where you you put on your robes, you shave your shave your head, and then uh, your abbot, as it then becomes, he takes the last piece of of hair from your head, you know, and uh, and then you just you're giving the the vows of a monk, you know, and so it's it's just like a, you basically just make a promise, you know, to live a certain life. Mm, okay. And uh, and then I stayed at the meditation center in Bulgaria for uh, a few months. For a few months, uh, went back to Norway, talked to my parents, and then in a way, my first thing as a monk was to go into the mountains in uh, in Nepal, up in Sulukumbu area. You know, it's on the the same route as you go to Everest. Okay. And. Uh, and then you just go, yeah, so it was close to the border of Tibet. It was a small retreat place. And I was given a, a mantra that I was supposed to repeat 100,000 times. It was quite a long mantra. And I was completely clueless, you know, so, uh, so I had to ask people, how long time would that take? You know, and I said, it will take you three months if you do it uh, all the time. So I thought, okay. So I, you know, just packed the bag and I went up there and... Uh, and they basically, the only road description I have, you know, they take a helicopter to Lukla and then you just walk, you take to the left and you just walk for a few hours and you will find it, you know. <laughs> I, would, I would never have done that today. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I found it, you know, and I had my little stone hut. It was uh, one monk and one nun living up there and they made some food for me. And I had a little bit of human contact around lunchtime, otherwise I was just sitting there by myself repeating the mantra. And uh, and again, almost the same thing happened as on the Vipassana retreat, just at a deeper level. So I, it took me six weeks, and I just like I screwed myself all the way down, you know, in the basement of myself, you know, and of course all my longings, all memories, almost like everything I had done my entire life, you know, that I was that was somehow undigested, you know, it came it came forward. And uh, it was really difficult. Uh, and after six weeks, it just uh, it just turned, you know. So one day I just woke up, and I was at peace. Hmm. And again, it was so surprising because nothing had changed, you know. Just something had changed in me. So uh, so the last six eight weeks of that retreat was really you know peaceful. So I came back to Kathmandu, I would say, with uh, with a new reference point that was uh, very significant for me. Hmm. Were you able to continue repeating the mantra, or did you have well, to take was, a break? Uh, that was just like uh, a retreat. For, for, it was a certain kind of practice that you did uh, 
So I continued with uh, some other practices, but not that one. You know, I did I did the same retreat the year after. You know, it was just a three month thing because it was a purification retreat. You know? So it had a specific purpose. Okay, so you were not chanting a mantra the whole time. You were. Yeah, I did it the whole time for those three months, but then after that, my practice changed. You know, I was given another thing to practice. Yes, yes, yes. So when you were on that retreat, though, for three months, yeah. did you struggle to stay connected to the mantra, or were you like, were there times where you were just? I imagine maybe in the beginning when you're like, okay, I'm here, time to begin, and did your mind wander? Did you find times when you actually couldn't? Yeah, definitely. Chant the mantra, or okay. No, I could always chant the mantra, but of course my mind was uh, wandering at the same time, you know. So, so that was. But of course, after uh, yeah, I don't know, after one and a half month, you know, I could, I was extremely focused, you know, because also I had hardly any human contact, you know. So I was, uh, my mind was as sharp as it has never been before, you know. Hmm. And uh, so the only thing I did apart from. Uh, Apart from doing the mantra, was to read. I studied some texts, you know, and I could see that my level of concentration was, yeah, at a completely different level that I had experienced before. So I thought, wow, now I really reached something. You know? But as soon as I came back to Kathmandu, you know, I lost it again. You know, so that was <laughs> <laughs> was definitely conditioned by the circumstances. But it was a great experience to see, you know, what what kind of sharpness you can have if you, you know, if you do the right things in a way. So, but what didn't shift was my experience of finding that still place in myself. And what another kind of non-meditation question, but what kind of food were you eating when you were on that retreat? Well, basically the only thing they, they can grow so high up in the mountains, you know, is potatoes. So I, I had potatoes in a lot of, lot of variations of potatoes, I have to say. Hmm. Uh, but since it was summer, they all, they also had some spinach, and they had managed to to get some some lentils, you know. And uh, so I, I had uh, I had uh, usually some dal every day, and potatoes, you know, and some spinach. Very simple food, you know. But I was completely satisfied, you know. That was um, that was not the problem. Yeah. Very simple food, you know. But, um, perfect retreat food. Hmm. And so then what kind of happened next? You were done with that. You had that big, another big shift in your relationship with yourself and with spirit. And so yeah. you left the retreat and what did you do next? Yeah, and then I went because I was in, uh, yeah, you could say within the group of Buddhism. And so I went to one of the meditation centers that belonged to that teacher and I just did some uh I did some work basically there and, uh, you know, talked to people and uh, started to teach a little bit of meditation, you know, very quiet, simple life. You know, I had my own studies and uh, I did that for a few months and then I went back to India and I had another center there and I did the same thing. And uh, next year I went back up to the mountains and did uh, the same thing again. So. So basically just teaching, continuing my own practice and my studies, you know, and that was, that was about it. Mm. And then, that, so that went on for a couple of years. Yeah, that went on for a couple of years. And my next, the next retreat up in the mountains was 
just extremely blissful from beginning to end, you know, and, uh, and, uh, yeah. And then actually at the second retreat up there, I met this, there was this little boy there, you know, he was only four years old. And, uh, and as, when he started to speak, you know, around two, he, the, um, some of the first things he said, you know, was that I'm the Laudu Lama, you know, I want to go back to Laudu. And then it turned out that the Laudu Lama had died one year before this kid was born, you know. So that was really interesting. So he basically said, you know, I'm the reincarnation of that Lama from from the time he was born. Mm. And uh, and I was always curious about that phenomenon, you know. Then I could study it also, you know, firsthand. So, uh, so that was like uh, an extra dimension of that second retreat. And... Uh, mm. Wow. So did he? Um, yeah, he was. He was actually later recognized as the reincarnation of that Lama, is now, is, and is now studying at one of the, the big monasteries down in South India. He's a young man now, but that was very interesting to see. You know that uh, that mix in a way between a child and something undefined. That was yeah. pressing him. You know, very, very, very interesting. Wow. So did you get to spend very much time with him or talking uh, to him? Yeah, I did because his family completely broke up, you know, so he was just put there and he was very lonely, you know, so and I, yeah, we, I, uh, I spend uh, time with him every day, you know, at, around lunchtime and I uh, went for walks with him to the mountains and he, one day actually he took, he just took my hand, you know, and he started walking. And he took me to that place called Lauda, where that old Lama had lived. It was actually a walk that would take you about one hour across the Himalayas. And this four-year-old, you know, he knew exactly where to walk. And uh, we came up there, and uh, and it was just a cave, basically with uh, two windows and a door. So about half a cave, half a house, where uh, the old Lama used to live. And where his old granddaughter now lived. You know? So he just went up there and he knocked on the door was a four-year-old, you know, and he came in. He sat down and uh, demanded to have a cup of tea. <laughs> and uh, so I was just sitting there, you know, and, and then actually they had a quarrel, you know. And I, I'm pretty sure that he wanted his place back. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Um, very interesting. But this this was a blood lineage, you know. It was, it was not a reincarnation lineage. So actually, he, he didn't get his place back, even though I think the, the granddaughter acknowledged who he was, you know. And, uh, and then he was extremely sad, you know. So then I actually had to take him, uh, you know, I had to hold him, and I had a little cry, you know, and I comforted him. And, uh, and five minutes later, he was back to his uh, very happy self, and we just went back again, you know. But very, uh, very interesting experience. I can't, I mean, that sounds like it would be so powerful and almost surreal to witness yeah i mean from uh thinking about my norwegian upbringing yeah i was pretty <laughs> far away from uh, my conditioning at that point yeah but I, uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't deny the experience you know and of course it was no was no question that this was real you know there was uh, there was uh, this was impossible to fake basically yeah hmm and so what led you to decide to leave being a monk? Well, I mean, as, um, as my studies and my own experience continued, you know, I was, uh, I started also to read books about uh, other traditions, you know, specifically the, the yogic Vedantic tradition, which I really recognized, you know, and for me it was just maybe a different vocabulary, but uh, 
exactly the same. I read some, you know, I started reading some Sufi literature and some Christian mystics. And, uh, and for me, it was obvious that, you know, that there is one spirit, you know, mm. with many languages. And then I realized that uh, most Buddhists, they didn't see it like that, you know. So I started to feel uncomfortable about being a kind of part of a tradition. And uh, so that went on for some time and just became increasingly difficult for me until I realized I have to, I have to leave, you know. I have to, I have to, to basically let go of everything that belongs to culture and try to keep the essence that basically what I myself feel is timelessly true, you know. Mm. And uh, in the end, I just had to do that. So then I went back to Norway and I started to study philosophy and, uh, and tried to put things together, you know, which was uh, extremely difficult. It was, uh, it was many, many years, you know, I felt completely raw, you know, like I didn't have skin. Hmm. So it was hard to go to India and become a monk, but it was really much harder to go back home and try to integrate the whole thing, you know. So, Did you... Very useful, very, very useful. And, and I learned a lot, you know, about, yeah, about many things. Did, um, did you feel grief from letting go of this tradition you were so deeply rooted in and committed to for a long time? And... Or were you, was it in, in between, like some grief and also some, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, like some ex excitement or searching, like you knew there was something else in addition to what you'd already learned? Or no, no, definitely it was, it was both, you know, I mean, I, uh, I knew deep inside that what I did was, was true. You know, so I was completely rooted in, in just a feeling of truth. That and that was actually just carrying me, was carrying me forward. No, so I I just couldn't argue with that feeling of truth. But there was definitely grief, you know, and uh, yeah, it was a lot of. And I think actually the last. Could you say remnants of that grief just left me maybe five years ago, you know, where I was still longing, you know, to just put on a robe and just walk along the Ganges, you know, and just bliss out. But I knew that wasn't my truth, at least not in this life, you know. I should do something else. Mm. So, um, but yeah, it took a long time to to let it go, to let that longing go, you know, for that. Uh, because I was really heading for a cave, you know. That was actually my my goal for many years, you know, just to completely seclude myself and just sit in meditation and I was convinced I was going to end up in a cave you know? so it was uh, it was pretty strong well I think that's just a really powerful testament to the the practice and when you are honest in in what you're doing in your meditation and your intentions for why you do what you do um we don't know what we're going to find <laughs> when we no, start exactly. on this path. And sometimes things, I mean, hopefully things change for us. It's not surprising to me to hear that at some point you felt like, even though it was very painful and had to take such courage, I'm sure uh, it was, it was the only choice.
for you? Yeah, yeah, it was the only choice because uh, that was very clear to me that if I didn't take that choice, I would actually die inside. Hmm. So uh, and and you know, so, so that of course also is my take on meditation today. You know, so I'm not for me. Uh, the practice of meditation for me is just like it's important in the sense that you can still yourself enough to find that voice you know that one voice that stands out in between all the other voices you know which is the voice of honesty and the voice of truth so for me the 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 main practice is in a way not meditation the main practice is to to be truthful Meditation is just a means to stay connected to that to that voice that knows truth. Do you think there's only one right way to meditate, or do you think there's many different ways that somebody could meditate into into the goal of stilling the mind? Oh yeah, no, I think there are yeah maybe even infinite ways, you know, because. Uh, and for me, that's the beauty of it, you know, in a way the, there is a, in one way, there is a unique path for everyone. There is a unique gate designed just for you. Uh, at the same time, I, mean, I definitely don't, medit- but meditation is also a very precise art, you know, so, uh, so if people say, you know, I do knitting, that's my meditation. Mm. Which which many people do say in Norway, you know, or I work in the garden, that's my meditation. Then I would always be interested to see what do they mean by that, you know, because of course many people think that meditation is just about relaxation. Yeah. So yeah. Something that makes you relax is is labeled meditation, you know, but that isn't meditation. Meditation, yeah, there is relaxation, but it also has to be a component of awareness. And, uh, you know, if you just walk in the forest, you know, you don't necessarily train your awareness, you know, most of the time you don't, you you just, but of course it's very important, it's beautiful, Uh, but it doesn't mean that it's necessarily meditation. So, I mean, so in a way I, from one point of view, I'm completely open that in a way everything could connect you to yourself. At the same time, when people use that word, this is my meditation, I need to ask, what do you mean by that? And very often it's only about some kind of relaxation, you know, which for me is not meditation. Meditation for me is something else. Mm. It's, uh, yeah, because, you know, when you, it has to be existential in a way, you know, it, it has to be that mirror of truth that suddenly opens up for you and you start to see your, what you thought was yourself, suddenly something you see in perspective, you know. That's in a way when the path begins, you know. That you see, you know, I am not Viggo from Horten. You know, Viggo in Horten is the object of meditation. You know, that that has to go. Absolutely. And two, I mean, meditation practices are such, uh, especially in the beginning, a wild ride. (laughs) Because just like you said, if you are seeking the truth and you are allowing the voice or that connection to your truth and or spirit to come through in little glimpses through all of the distraction, all of the noise of your mind. Um, some of the things that come up are really hard and uh, emotional and chaotic. And w- when we think about 
fully acknowledging all parts of ourselves. It's not just like, oh yeah, I'm meditating and it's super relaxing. And you described an experience of being blissed out when you were on these very intense retreats. And I think that's a distinction though. Like you were working in your meditation practice deeply, deeply rooted in it. So the outcome hopefully is that you will reach that place of bliss. But compared to somebody who says, oh, knitting is my meditation or walking my dogs is my meditation. It's like, well, there might be a little bit of a, dis- of a difference there between <laughs> that blissed out state you get from working in your garden or the blissed out state that comes from a very pure connection to source. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, you know, that it's just not the same thing, you know? Yes. And uh, I think also, you know, you could... But you could also do serious meditation and you could in a way be, you could be extremely still and blissful meditation, but as soon as, but your everyday life could be in bits and pieces, you know. And then for me also something, the most crucial element is lacking, you know. So, so in a way it has to be, when you start to work on yourself for real, it has. To, there is no way. You, it will be at one point extremely painful. You know, you, if you expect it to be an easy ride, then for me it's not real because you start to see everything you thought was yourself, and then you see it's just patterns. You know, and then you have to start to. You know, you have to replace judgment with love. You know, into all the dark corners of yourself. And that is not something you do in the weekend, you know, or it's not something I think is particularly blissful. That's really difficult. It's very difficult and scary. Exactly. And, and uh, you know, so, so at one point that element will arise if you are on a true path. It's not, you know, it's not an escape into a happy life. You know, it's, it's about truth. It's not about superficial happiness. But I would also say true, when you take that work and you actually go through everything about yourself that you somehow don't like or find dark, you know, and you actually go through it, then of course at the other end you will find peace. But that's a peace of a completely different nature because that peace has stability. You know, it's not conditioned by doing this or that, it's actually stable. You know? so, and, and stability is stable in all kinds of weather. Hmm. So, uh, so, so yeah. So you have to go through everything, basically, and of course, then meditation as a tool is a is a fantastic tool. But it is a tool to do that work. It's not an end in itself. Yeah, and I also think the difference is then once you reach that point of having, you know, for me, I think meditation is is not just a practice for this lifetime, but a practice for many lifetimes. And hopefully there's some progression there. Um, that, but we can still have very amazing responses to these practices and to these tools right now. But I think the difference is, though, once you've kind of traveled the path a little bit of a dedicated practice and that peace that you're talking about, that contentment that shines through it's very, very different because it's coming from the inside out as opposed to searching for that same peace or that same contentment from something outside of you. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, and I really agree with you. With, uh, you know, because if you, if, you are, if you actually are on the path, you know, then for me, 
where that leads to in this lifetime, that's, that's completely insignificant, you know, because to be on the path in itself is, is fullness. So this whole, you know, that it need that it should lead somewhere, you know, that it should end in enlightenment or whatever. I mean, that's for me, that is, I don't understand it even because if you're on the path, then you are fulfilled. And whether that takes one lifetime or even a million lifetimes, to me, that doesn't matter, actually, because you are fulfilled when you are on the path. Mm. And if you're not, for me, then something is wrong, I have to say. <laughs> and it's just another search for something in the, into the future. And then uh, that, that's definitely not spirit. Spirit is not searching into the future. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think... This is where we'll wrap up today. Um, oh, I love talking about meditation. And thank you so much, Vigo, for sharing your thoughts and your story. And um, I think it's just, it's so inspiring. And especially, it, it, it's very, it comes through very much your, um, your compassion for yourself and the practice and the people that you work with. And I think that's super inspiring. So um, thank you. Thank you very much, Jessica. It was a pleasure. Yes. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye.